All right, well, let's jump in. We've been working our way through the book of Acts on Sunday morning, and we've been in this book almost a year. And as we've been traveling through, you know, we, we've been looking at smaller portions just because there are certain times when you have to go a little bit slow to kind of explain what's going on. We're going to find that from this point on to the end of the book, we're going to take larger sections as we go. So the pace is going to be picked up just a little bit. I love the book of Acts because it's the history book of the the, uh, early church. It covers the time period when Jesus goes back to heaven. And uh, the, the main things that the Holy Spirit wanted us to know for about, um, from when Jesus goes back to heaven for the next 35 years. And so as, as we begin today and every week, I like to begin with a little bit of a timeline there in the top of your outline, Acts chapters 1 and 2 take place in the year 30 AD. That's the year again where Jesus ascends to heaven, the Holy Spirit is given, the church is birthed, things begin to happen. And as we've been going through the book of Acts, we followed in the first part, it was the the events of the early church, then it was the ministry of Peter, and then there's this transition over to the ministry of Paul the Apostle. So we've been following Paul's journey, Paul's missionary journeys. And we've been following uh, most recently Paul's journey back to Jerusalem. Now there on your outline, uh, the last time Paul was in Jerusalem in our story was in the year 50 AD, 50 AD. Several years pass and Paul comes back to Jerusalem when we looked at that last week and this week uh, uh, in the year 58 AD. So it's been about eight years since Paul has been in Jerusalem. And we followed his journey, if I can put the map up, You'll remember from the previous weeks that Paul was ministering up in the area, we would say Ephesus. That was in the area that they, they called Asia in those days. We call that modern-day Turkey today. And so it was there that Paul began to sense that the Holy Spirit was calling him to go down to Jerusalem. So we followed his journey all the way back over to Israel. Jerusalem is in the bottom part all the way over to the right of the screen. And Paul came back to Jerusalem. We looked at that last week. When Paul came to Jerusalem, he's been in the areas that, that were primarily Gentile. And so Paul has taken a few years to raise, to raise a significant offering to bring back to the church in Jerusalem, probably in the millions of dollars. And we looked at that as, as we went through. So last week he comes back to Jerusalem And the first thing that he does is he goes and he meets with the leadership of the Jerusalem church. And so we talked about that meeting. And there in your outline, I I put two verses from that just to highlight something we talked about last week. He meets with the leadership of the church and it says, they said to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands, and that word there, myriads, uh, myriads of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law, and they have been informed. And we mentioned that that word there is katecheo, and we'll talk about that, that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses. And, and, and so there are these rumors going around about Paul. And, but the church leadership says, you know, when you go through Jerusalem now, there, there's myriads, many myriads. And a myriad is the equivalent of 10,000 people. And there's many of them. So we mentioned last week that would be a minimum of 50,000 people who came from a Jewish background who were becoming believers. But we also noticed when we read that, it says that they are zealous for the law. It didn't say that they were zealous for, for Jesus. And, and, and so we mentioned that it appears, and one of the things we discovered 
is that they had embraced a form of Christianity and they believed that Jesus came so that we could begin to really follow the rules. And and, uh, we, we talked about they wanted to follow all of the rules of the Old Testament. And then I I mentioned last week that many of us come from a church background where we were taught that when you become a Christian, Jesus really empowers you to keep a whole list of rules. And uh, we raised our hands as to how many of us came from that background. And so we talked about that. And and then we noticed that it says that those who are zealous for the law, and then it says they have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses. And we mentioned that that word there for informed is the word katecheo, from where we get the English word catechism. And uh, we looked at the definition of that word and it meant to be indoctrinated. And so the idea is that all of these people who were zealous for the law had been indoctrinated against Paul as he arrived. And we talked about that last week. In, in their legalistic mindset, uh, these many thousands had listened to these rumors about Paul and, uh, and in their indoctrination, they, they completely write him off. And one of the things that we talked about is they had written off and had been indoctrinated against the man that would lead more people to Jesus than everybody in that church combined. But they'd listened to some rumors and so now they're indoctrinated, catechized or catechism uh, against them. So so we're going to see today that the many thousands who are zealous for the law, who've been indoctrinated against Paul, as things go really bad for him, those who've been zealous for the law are not going to show up. They're going to be glaringly absent from showing up on Paul's behalf. And we'll talk about that as we go. So Paul goes before the church leadership and the church leadership gets this idea and says, you know, all these people are, you know, they've been indoctrinated against you. Uh, so here's, here's what we want you to do. We want you to go before the priest there at the temple. We want you to go through a purification process and then receive the, the okay or the blessing from the priest, which many think is a terrible decision. And the reason for that would be that they're asking Paul to go back to the temple before the priest and those priests had and were currently rejecting Jesus. And so why would Paul go to the priest to to get their okay? And so Paul does, he agrees to that. And so he goes, and as he goes, you'll recall from last week, uh, as he goes to the temple before the priest, there's this huge riot. Mayhem breaks out everywhere. And so we looked at that last week, and we're going to pick it up in verse 31. This riot takes place as Paul goes to the temple uh, to receive their blessing. So verse 31 and 21, our story picks up where we left off last week. and says, now while they were seeking to kill him, a report came to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. This is a massive riot over Paul. And at once he took along soldiers and centurions. And we mentioned last week that centurions, a centurion would be somebody who's over at least a hundred soldiers. So when it says centurions, the idea is there will be at least several hundred soldiers going with them. And they ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. And uh, so so when the, the Romans arrive, what we notice is that and you want to write this down, is that Paul is going to be rescued by unbelievers, but, but not by Christian legalists who had embraced that Christianity is the uh, empowering to keep a, a whole bunch of rules. So verse 33, it continues, 
when the commander came up and took hold of him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Now, we talked about that last week. That's important for our study. Paul is chained between two Roman soldiers at this point. He began asking who he was and what he had done. Paul, the commander's not asking Paul. He's asking the crowd. But among the crowd, some were shouting one thing and some another. And when they could not find out the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When he got to the stairs, he was carried, Paul, was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people kept following them, shouting, away with him. And, and last week we talked about how as Paul came to Jerusalem, it looked a whole lot like when Jesus came to Jerusalem. And we mentioned the similarities of what took place, but both of them heard the crowd shout, away with him. And we looked at several of those similarities. Well, in verse 37, it says, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Now, now the crowd, because this is Jerusalem, would have been yelling and speaking in Hebrew and possibly Aramaic. When they are shouting all that they're shouting, because this is a Roman commander, he will not speak Hebrew. He will speak Latin and he will speak Greek, but he, but he has no idea what they're saying in Hebrew. So when Paul speaks to him as the commander and he speaks in Greek, the man realizes that Paul is obviously an educated man. So verse 38, it says, then you're not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. He thought that Paul was a terrorist and was that terrorist. But Paul answered and said, I'm a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city. And I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand. And when there was a great hush, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect saying, and chapter 22 begins with what he's going to say. Now, Keep in mind uh, that when Paul speaks, and it says he speaks to them in the Hebrew dialect, the commander's going to be listening in, but he doesn't speak. He doesn't speak Hebrew. So he has no idea what Paul is saying. That'll be important for our study. So Paul begins in chapter 22, verse 1, and it says, Paul begins, he says, Brethren, fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. I put that there on your outline. He says, brethren and fathers, hear my defense. And uh, you can see that that Greek word there is the word apologia. It's the word that we get our English word apology, but it's also the word that we get apologetics from. Apologetics would be the defense of the faith. And uh, so, so Paul is going to give his apology or his apologetic of the faith. What we're also going to notice, and I want you to write this down, Paul's apologetic will be to just give a very simple testimony. A very simple testimony. The reason for that is that all theological points, truths, can be argued, which is why there are so many different churches here in Jupiter and every, and every town. We have differences of theology. So you can always argue those things, but it's very hard to argue against somebody who says, here's what Jesus did for me. So Paul's just going to say, here's what Jesus did for me. And he starts... Verse 2, when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. 
And he said, I am a Jew, just like you guys, born in Tarsus of Cilicia. He says, I wasn't born here in the promised land, but I am a Jew. And uh, when it says that he was born in Tarsus, that would tell us that he would be very familiar with the Greek culture, the Hellenistic culture of the day. And then he says, but brought up in this city. I wasn't born here, but I was brought up in this city. Educated under Gamaliel. Now Gamaliel was considered the greatest rabbi of all time. If you come from a particular denomination, your denomination is going to have its own seminary. And so when somebody would come to your church and they say, well, I graduated from this seminary and it's the seminary of your denomination, all of a sudden it's going to give you credibility. All of these people, although there's a riot about him, they all agree that Gamaliel was the greatest rabbi. So his seminary was, in their mind, the the, the most important or the best. So under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God just as you all are today. I persecuted this way, verse 4, to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prison. There in Jerusalem, and this is 28 years after Jesus has been raised from the dead, the church has been given, they do not call people who follow Jesus Christians. They call them people of the way. The reason they call them people of the way or part of the way is because the one thing that Jesus said is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So they, were just refer, they just referred to them as people of the way. They were just following Jesus. But he says, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons. If you've been following our story, you'll recall back in chapter 7, Stephen or Stephen, however your Bible says it, Paul oversaw his execution. He becomes the first martyr of the church. That's the one story that we're told. But Paul had overseen the killings of other Christians, putting a number of people in prison. We're just told that one story. A whole lot more happens than we're told. Verse 5, as also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify, from them I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. Verse 6, but it happened that as I was on my way, going to Damascus, approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. And I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now you will remember when we first started, he was named Saul. After he becomes a believer, he takes the name Paul, but he was called Saul at that point. And when we look at that, one of the things that we, we notice is that Paul is going, or Saul at that point, is going to arrest Christians. And he is to put them in prison and beat them and, and all of that. But the voice doesn't say, why are you hurting Christians? The voice says, why are you persecuting me? And so we got from that, and you want to write this down, persecuting the church is persecuting Jesus. And it's apparently something that he takes very personal, very personal. So then Paul begins to continue, or he continues, and he relates to us the things that we talked about back in chapter 9. So verse 8, it says, and I answered, who are you, Lord? And I've underlined that, that question. And he said to me, I am Jesus, the Nazarene, whom you're persecuting. And those who are with me saw the light 
to be sure, but they did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, and I've underlined this, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, get up and go on to Damascus, and there you will be told all that has been, all that has been appointed for you to do. There's a few things I want to share here today as we go through this. We shared some of this back in chapter 9 when we went through this story. I want to share some of these things again because Paul's telling the story again. Maybe I'm sharing some of these because of my own background, which could be quite possible. And uh, certainly these are things that really jump out to me. So just just a few things that we see. Paul here is going to be the picture of what we're going to call a true conversion. There are true conversions, and then there are people who have an experience, but it's not really a true conversion. So what do we notice uh, about Paul's true conversion? I mean, would you agree that he's definitely been converted at this point? So you say yes, like you mean it? Okay. So we're going to notice a couple of things. First of all, um, he's going to ask the question, who are you, Lord? And so he's going to call Jesus Lord. I want you to write that down, Lord. Now, when he says, Lord, he recognizes who he's talking to. Today, when you go to lunch and you pray and you say, Lord, bless this food, you're praying to God. And he knows he's speaking to God. And so you want to write that down. Lord just means God. He doesn't want to miss it. He realizes that uh, whoever it is he's persecuting, and uh, he realizes he's been wrong. And so the response, the answer to his question is, he answered and said, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus, the Nazarene. In essence, Paul says, who are you, God? And the response is, I am Jesus. This is another time where the Bible points out that Jesus is not just a prophet or a teacher, but he's God. All Christians believe Jesus is God. Everyone else believes Jesus is not God. Dividing line of everything that is Christian, everything that is not Christian. So he recognizes here that Jesus is God. But another thing that we notice, because he's truly been converted, the next question that he's going to ask in verse 10, he said, and I said, what shall I do, Lord? And so the the second question of a true conversion is, what do you want me to do? Lord, what do you want me to do? True conversion always asks the question, Lord, what do you want me to do? Uh, You and I live in a generation where there are those who profess to be Christians, but the question is not, Lord, what do you want me to do? The question is, Lord, here's what I want you to do for me. And and that's not completely wrong, because when we pray, we're asking the Lord to do something. Lord, would you do this? The problem becomes when, when somebody is all in with Jesus, as long as Jesus is doing what they are saying to do, but at the point where Jesus says, well, here's what I want you to do, they say, well, that's not how it works for me. Uh, the false conversion, it's always about, Lord, what you do for me. True conversion goes before the Lord and says, Lord, what do you want me to do? And that's the starting point. And, and so we see that. He goes before the Lord and he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? This is a picture of true conversion. We also notice something else. In verse 10, it says, and I, and I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, get up and go on to Damascus, and there you'll be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. The second thing that we notice is that when God speaks, God always speaks specifically. Always speaks specifically. Now again, I, I'm, I'm more passionate about this. I come from 
uh, a number of church backgrounds, but in one of the church backgrounds that I was in for a long period of time, we would have what we called the prophet of the month come in. And uh, so each, each month it would be a different prophet and they would come in and, and, and prophesy. I, I believe in prophecy, but uh, so anything else I say beyond that, I just know that I do believe in prophecy. But the prophecies that we re- would receive are always this very misty kind of nebulous prophecy where you'd go before the prophet and the prophet would say something like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sensing that the Lord is wanting to, um, you're, you're praying about something in your life and it's in the area of, it's, it's in the area of finances and they'd say, no, it's relationship. Yes, yes, it's, it's relationship and they'd kind of find out what you're doing. And uh, they'd say, and the Lord wants me to tell you that he wants to bless you in this. He wants, this, he, he wants to open this up so that he can just flow and, and just answer this question. But, but here's the thing. Um, the Lord is telling me that there's this area that he's been dealing with you at, and you haven't, you haven't really taken care of that. You're kind of struggling with that. And, and, uh, and then the prophet would say, and, I, and I'm not going to say it out loud, to which we'd all go, thank you, Jesus. Don't say it out loud. But, but let me ask you a question. Is there anybody here, or, or let me ask it this way. Did you think that by this time in your Christian experience, you'd at least have it a little bit more together than you have I'm the only one, right? Once again, I'm the only one. So, so all of us have that area that we're like, oh, you know, and, and the Lord's speaking to us and, and maybe it's been taken care of, maybe it hasn't. And so then the prophet would say, so the Lord wants me to tell you that he wants to usher this in, this blessing in your life and answer this, but there's this area. And when you deal with this area, God's going to be free to answer this, this prayer request, this whatever, and, uh, but, but he, he has to have you do that first. So in those prophecies, the prophet is always right. See, if, 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 uh, if it happens, what you're praying for, it's because you obviously took care of whatever it was. But uh, if it doesn't happen, it's because you never took care of what the prophet said that you, know, you had. And, and so it was always this mystical, misty kind of thing. But what we notice here is, is God says, I want you to get up, go to the city, and there I will tell you the next thing that you need to know. God always speaks very, very specifically. Does that make sense? So beware. I have, uh, and then another thing that we notice about God when he speaks is that God tends to speak, and you want to write this down, one step at a time. There in, in verse 10, get up and go on to Damascus, and there you will be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. When you go through the Bible and God is speaking, he typically just gives the next step. So God comes to Abraham there in Genesis, and he says, follow me to a country that you do not know. That's just the next step. Nothing else goes beyond that. The question is, will he do that? Uh, Philip, back in chapter 8 of the book of Acts, as we traveled through, he's ministering effectively. The Holy Spirit speaks and says, I want you to go south of Jerusalem to the street that goes down to Gaza. Just, just go there. That's all he gets. So he goes. It's just the next step. In Acts chapter 10, Peter's on the roof and he's praying. The Holy Spirit speaks to him, says, go downstairs. There's some men. Go with them. Not going to tell you where. Not going to tell you next. Just, just do that. So it's always the next step. Always the next step. Many people struggle with following the Lord because God doesn't always give the next five steps. He gives the next step. And, and so there in, in my notes, I have a side note here and something that I always encourage 
and just, if I'm not hearing from God, ask what it was the last thing that God said. And typically what you'll find, if, if God's spoken to you about something and you're not hearing, go back to that, take care of that, and uh, you'll be surprised at, at how God begins to move again. Well, verse 11, it continues, he's still speaking. And he says, but since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and I came into Damascus. And a certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law, the Old Testament law, and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing near said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I looked up at him, you could see, and he said, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him and to all men of what you have seen and heard. And uh, another thing that, that we mentioned, when we went through this back in chapter nine, you want to write this down. We notice that when God is working, God is confirming. God is always confirming what he's doing. So God comes to Paul and he says, I want you to go to the city. And when you go there, I'm going to tell you what you need to know at that, at that point. At the same time, Ananias is praying. And God has already spoken to Paul. And now God speaks to Ananias. So when Ananias comes to speak to Paul, he's not showing up in the sense saying, God told me to tell you. Uh, God has already told Paul that he's going to receive the rest of the story when he gets there. So Ananias is going to be the confirmation of what it is that God is already saying. God told Paul, and now God tells Ananias, so when he shows up, he's the confirmation. And I have in my notes, I don't think it's on your outline, but I have beware when they say, God told me to tell you. How many of you have ever had somebody come up and say, God told me to tell you? So, so here, here's what you, you want to know in this is that if, if God has something to say to you, he will speak to you. Uh, the God who tells us not to gossip does not gossip. So he does not go behind your back and tell somebody else something about you and they come to you and say, the Lord told me to tell you. What he will do is he will be speaking to you and then he will send somebody to confirm what he's already saying. If he doesn't send, if he's not speaking to you first, then that's just gossip. Does that make sense? And uh, so, you know, so beware. You know, anytime somebody's ever come to me and said, Pastor, the Lord has told me to tell you, they, they've, they've, they've always, it's always been wrong. And, uh, but I will say this, it's not part of my notes. If you went to junior high church camp, this was the best pickup line ever. You'd say, baby, the Lord has put you on my heart. Now, I, not that I ever did that, but I you know, heard people sometimes talk. So, so if God wants to say something to you, he'll, he'll tell you, but then he'll bring confirmation. But when they show up and say, God told me to tell you, and he's not telling you, you don't have to accept that. Now, what, what I do love uh, about this um, very, very quickly, we don't get this in this chapter, but we get this back when the story was told back in chapter 9 because Paul's just reiterating what happened. I do love what God did say to Ananias about Paul. There on your outline, 
And this is back in chapter 9. The Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen, and I've underlined that word, chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. What I love about this is that when Paul is coming to Damascus, he has been persecuting Christians. He's going to arrest. He's going to have them beaten, thrown into prison. But when God comes and he speaks to Ananias about Paul, he doesn't say, this Paul, he's such a jerk. You know, can you believe what he's doing? He says, hey, Ananias, I want you to know he is my chosen vessel. When he speaks about Paul, he says, he's my chosen vessel. When God speaks to Paul, he's okaying, saying, Paul, why are you persecuting me? But when he speaks about Paul, he says, he's my chosen vessel. So, so what I love about that is that God speaks about Paul as to who he is to become and all that God's going to do in his life. To Paul, he says, you're persecuting me. But when he speaks about him, it's very different. Now, the reason for that is if you're a parent here today and your children are not going the way that you want, you're in a marriage and it's not going the, the way that you had hoped, one of the things that we notice in the Bible is that God always speaks the desired future. So he says about Paul, when he's arresting people, he's my chosen. So there, there on your outline, you want to write down, God called Saul his chosen vessel long before there was evidence of anything worthy in Saul to choose. Now, always remember that back in chapter 9, Paul went by the name Saul. When he becomes a believer, he goes by the name Paul. So verse 16, it continues on, speaking with Ananias. And he says, And why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now, this verse can be a little bit confusing for some. Some people think that this verse means that you have to be baptized to have your sins washed away. And uh, a lot of it depends on where you put the comma. But there in your outline it says, and now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So is that you're baptized to have your sins washed away, or are you baptized, or are, you, are your sins washed away as you call on his name? And if you come from one church background, then you would say, no, you have to be baptized to have your sins washed away. If you come from another church background, uh, you would say, no, you, you call on his name, and that's what washes away your sin. Washing your sins, calling on his name. So we take the position that, and you want to write this down, sins are washed away by calling on his name. Now, the reason we take that position is because of what Peter taught. Peter said it like this there in your outline. Baptism, which is like that water, now saves you. Baptism doesn't save by removing dirt from the body, the dunking. Rather, baptism is a request to God for a clear conscience. So we would hold that it's not the water that washes away your sins. It's the request to God for a clear conscience. And baptism is the outward sign of the inward commitment. Let me explain it like this. If you're single here today and you don't want to be single, um, you can go out and you can purchase a, a wedding ring. If you're single and you purchase a wedding ring, does that make you married? You'd say, well, no, it doesn't make me married. 
So what makes you married? Well, what makes you married is somebody stands with you, you say I do, they say I do, and in that somebody pronounces you husband and wife, and that makes you married. And because of that pronouncement, you're married, you then put on the wedding ring. Is that typically how it works? Let me ask you this. Is it possible for a husband and wife to come together and say, I do, I do, somebody say, I now pronounce you man and wife, if they walk away and they do not put on a wedding ring, does that make them unmarried? We would say, no, it doesn't make them unmarried. Uh, husbands, if your wife sees you without one, it might make you dead, but, but it <laughs> won't make you unmarried. The point is that the wedding ring isn't what makes you married. The wedding ring is an outward symbol of the commitment that you've made. In the same way, here, it's not the water that washes away your sins. It's the calling on him. And because you've called on him, having your sins washed away, then you go and you're baptized. So that, that would be our, our position. So the story goes on. Paul spends a little bit more time with Ananias. And then go a few years ahead in the future. In verse 17, it says, And it happened when I returned to Jerusalem... And I was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance. And I saw him, Jesus, saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And, and when the blood of your witness, Stephen, or Stephen, however your Bible says it, was being shed, I also was standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. I oversaw the slaying of, of Stephen. And, and he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So Paul here, he says, I came back to Jerusalem and, and I told the Lord, I wanted to minister to my Jewish friends. And the Lord says, go, I'm sending you far away to the Gentiles. And uh, I love the response in verse 22. It says, they listened to him. This is the whole crowd up to this statement. And when they raised their voice and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, he should not be allowed to live. The statement that they listened to is when Paul said, the Lord was sending me to the Gentiles. Now, in those days, and you think we have racial tension in our country, in the Middle East 2,000 years ago, it was very common among Jewish people not all Jewish people, but common among, they believed that those of us who would be non-Jewish Gentiles, that our sole purpose was simply to heat up the fires of hell and keep that going. That's all we were good for. So when they're listening to Paul, but when he says, the Lord says, go, I'm sending you to the Gentiles, that was unfathomable to them. Why would God want to send anybody to the Gentiles? So all of a sudden you have the riot erupts again. Verse 23, now, as they were crying out and throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust into the air, very Middle Eastern, the commander ordered him, Paul, to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging, however your Bible says it, so that he might find out the reason while they were shouting against him that way. Now, keep in mind, Paul is speaking in Hebrew to the crowd. The commander has no idea what he's saying. Everybody's listening. But at a certain point, Paul says something and the whole crowd erupts. The commander has no idea what's been said, but he says, I'm going to get to the bottom of this. So he says, I'm going to take him in and have him scourged. Now, scourging, scourging was a form 
of punishment that would cause you to confess. Uh, many people died in the scourging. Uh, many people, if they survived it, would be maimed permanently. They would be disfigured and, and many would even be paralyzed because it would involve a, a whip and that whip would have stones in it. It would have bones in it. So when they hit you, it would literally pull the flesh off of you. And they would do this until you confessed. So when they wanted answers, they knew how to get it very, very quickly. So it continues on in verse 25. The, the commander says, we're going to do this too. We're going to get the answers here. Verse 25, when they stretched him out, Paul, with thongs, that would be leather straps, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and told him, saying, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman. At first they thought that Paul was a terrorist, then they just thought he was just a common troublemaker, uh, but now they find out that he's a Roman. In those days, if you were a Roman citizen, you could not be put into chains, uh, which we're going to find out in a, in a moment is going to be a real cause for concern because this Roman commander has broken the law, putting Paul into chains. Uh, if you put some of them, uh, you put a Roman citizen into chains without there being due process, you would lose your job. If you were to scourge a Roman citizen, and typically that didn't happen for Roman citizens, if you were to do that and that Roman citizen survived and it was found out, the same thing would happen to you. So this commander realizes he's got a real problem on his hand. He's already broken the law, and if he goes any further, what he's going to do to Paul is going to happen to him. So very interesting what Paul does here is that, and you want to write this down, Paul exercises his legal rights. They're about to violate his civil rights. They're about to violate his legal rights. And Paul says, I'm a Roman citizen. And, and that's okay to do, to exercise your legal rights. There, there comes a time for that. And for Paul, there really is no other, no other uh, option. So verse 26, it says, Now when the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and told him, saying, What are you about to do? This man is a Roman. And the commander came and said to him, Tell me, are, are you a Roman? And he said, Yes. And the commander answered, I acquired the citizenship with a large sum of money. And Paul said, but I was actually born a citizen. Therefore, those who are about to examine him through scourging immediately released him or examined him, immediately let go of him. And the commander, notice this, was also afraid when he found out that he was a Roman because he had put him in chains. Does everybody see that? He's broken a major law against a Roman citizen. So what we're going to find is that the commander realizes that Paul is not to be treated as a criminal. There's no charges against him. So the commander's job is now to protect Paul. So you want to write down that Paul goes from being a prisoner to going into protective custody. And and now growing up, we, we were always taught that at this point, Paul's put in chains and he's going to be chained to Romans and he's going to be chained in, in the dungeon. There, there are no charges against Paul, so they can't do that. Now we're going to pick the story up here next week, but I wanted to just read verse 30 as we close. It says, on the next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews, he released him. You want to underline that. And ordered the chief priests and the council to assemble and brought Paul down 
and set him before them. So we're going to see next week that the commander realizes he's not to treat Paul like a prisoner, but he's there to protect him. Well, we'll pick it up there next week. Did you find that at least interesting today? Good, good. And uh, we'll go from there next week. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Father, as we close this today, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, for just those reminders that when you have something to say, you say it very clearly, and uh, you give us one step at a time. And when we're not hearing, we just need to go back to the last thing that you said, take care of that, and wait for you to speak again. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this congregation. Thank you for their love for you, their love for the word, their love for the things of your spirit. And I pray, God, that you keep each and every one of us till we meet again. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Well, God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.